0: This is a podcast by Well House Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's up, beer lovers?
1: How are we doing?
0: We doing good. I am ready to get into this beer, though, dog. Like, yeah,
1: I'm pretty excited for what we got in, uh, got on tap today. Yeah, it's not actually on not tap, on but.
0: Tap. Dude, how cool would it be? If, like, we had a different set for P&P with, like, a... A A kegerator. With a kegerator in between us. It'd be cool. Uh,
1: Goals. Yeah. One day One day
0: we might be able to do that. That would be awesome. Yeah. But with our own beer in it, like...
1: Yeah, but then we can't do stuff with partners.
0: Oh, no, no, no. We still do that. Oh,
1: but, like, just just for the set, have our own beer. Just for the set, have
0: our own beer in it, and, like,
1: yeah. If you want to come work for Wellhouse Church, you can have free beer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, if you help us brew it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, anyways, so talk about that. Okay.
1: So, Clayton bought beer and...
0: Like, in advance. I just went and bought a crap ton. Yeah.
1: And Clayton is... Clayton doesn't like that I'm a one-dimensional beer drinker. No. <laughs> Boring. I... I just really love IPAs. It's not that I don't like other beers. I just really, really love IPAs. So Clayton's been trying to get me other stuff, and especially in the summer, I love sours. I don't like berry-based sours, though. Strawberry, blackberry, I don't like any of that stuff. I want pitted fruit-based
0: sours. Like stone fruits.
1: Yep, stone fruits. So Clayton got me, this is from Martin House Brewing Company in Fort Worth, Texas. It's called the Danada, which I think is actually kind of cool. And it's an agave and guava sour ale. Yeah. It's 6.7% ABV. The can's really, and the can is really cool. I don't know if you guys can
0: see it or not on
1: YouTube, but like the can is really cool. It's, It's a vibe. I'm interested to taste it.
0: I want to try it because, like, I want to try all beer because, I don't know, maybe I'll like that. I just generally don't like sours. You don't like sours most of the time. So, I have something from a brewery that we will probably be buying more from. Yeah, so Um, I had
1: one of their beers off camera. Yeah. And it was a beer I've never had. I've never even had the style
0: of beer. It was a sparkling IPA. It was delicious though. It, it was, was really delicious. good. It was um, very good. And so the Manhattan project beer company out of Dallas, mm-hmm. um, uh, we will be doing more from them, especially mm-hmm. cause we already have one more beer in there from them. Uh, we have a coffee stout. Um, yeah, don't, that helps. <laughs> huh? That helps. Yeah. I don't know if fallout is like a line of beers that they have. Or, yeah. I can't
1: figure that out. Um, Because we've had several stuff from Manhattan uh, Brewing,
0: we this is the first one we've ever done one on camera.
1: Is it? Yeah. Oh, maybe we've just looked at several because we've bought so much beer. I bought three of them. I bought this
0: one, the coffee stout, and then the sparkling IPA that I wanted us to try to see if it was good. Yeah. Before we just did all these beers, right? Yep. Um. But I don't know if Fallout is like a line of beers that they do because. All three of the ones that I bought said fallout on them. Um,
1: but that's not the name of the brewing company.
0: But it's not the name of the brewing company. And each of them have been a different style of beer. So yeah. I don't know what's going on there. Um, we'll have to look at that. Yeah. But this is their, this is the Hefeweizen. Oh. Um, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Uh, love good German style beers. Yep. 5.3 uh, says it pairs well with banana bread, history, and sausage. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Uh,
1: All good German things.
0: Fallout is, so see, here it is. Fallout is a German-style Hefeweizen with a soft mouthfeel and a balanced presence of clove and banana. This wheat uh, wheat beer is easy drinking with enough bitterness to offset the malt sweetness. It is also one of the most approachable and enjoyable beer styles that harkens back to the early beer days.
1: Interesting.
0: I'm really excited about it. I'm going to go check the other can and make sure it says Fallout on it.
1: Well, I know that the sparkling IPA that I had, uh, which was really good, definitely said Fallout. that no. Doesn't say Fallout on it? No, it
0: says Black Matter.
1: <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. Um, so
0: Fallout is the name of the beer.
1: Yeah, you're right.
0: That's um, just their logo on top of it. Rank
1: on my <laughs> TikTok. Somebody had sent me a TikTok and I tried to use the same tab um, to open like the Manhattan Project, Project Beer. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah,
1: I'm looking it up. Um,
0: but anyways, they are out of Dallas and they've got, it seems like some good stuff. Oh yeah,
1: you're right. Um, yeah. You you are a hundred percent right because mine was called the Trinitite or Trinitite. Oh yeah, but they, that's right. But they all have the same little logo.
0: They all look very similar. Well, um, they all
1: have the logo. Yeah, uh, that looks kind of like the atomic bomb.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: um I guess hence their name, right. Manhattan Project. But anyways, uh, yeah. cool, uh,
0: cool style of beer. Cheers, cheers. Oh, very clovey, very clovey, like super clove heavy.
1: I don't know that I would like that in a half.
0: It's enjoyable. Not my favorite, but it's enjoyable.
1: This is really good. I will be
0: buying that again. Ooh, that smells funky. Oh, yuck. No. Oh,
1: my God. In yours, all I taste is clove.
0: That is yuck.
1: And this is why this podcast is (laughs) called Pints and Perspectives, because (sighs) just like we all taste and love different beers, we taste and love different veins of theology. I have now
0: ruined my palate. my God. Oh, no, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I will not be able to taste anything else from this beer.
1: Yes, you will. You'll taste straight clove. Ugh. That thing tastes exactly like clove extract.
0: I mean, I still get some of the sweetness from the malt, but I like, don't get much. It is that sour is hanging.
1: But they even put on the your head the clove scale.
0: Yeah. It is massive. Oh, it's like seventy five percent. Yeah, it's right? massive. Like uh, it's just it, it's it, super clove. It heavy.
1: slaps you in the face with
0: clove. Yeah. I like it. It's a nice change of pace. It's not something I want to drink every day, though.
1: I really like this sour. If you like stone fruit sours, that's a pretty good one.
0: Yeah. Um, I thought that you would enjoy the agave and guava thing.
1: Oh, I do. I absolutely do. Um, I love agave, though.
0: Yeah, it was just, it's... And what's crazy is I like tart and sour things. Yeah. Like, I love it. I just don't like it in beer. I I love it. I love it. I just don't, I don't know what it is. I have not found a sour that I like. All
1: right. So let's continue our conversation about God and ethic. And specifically within that series, let's continue to talk about God and violence. Yeah. I really think that I could stretch this to three episodes.
0: We might chew it
1: um, Let me see how the day goes, and I'll decide over the next week before we record again if I want to make this a three-part series or a two-part series. Okay.
0: There's a lot to cover here, though.
1: Well, yeah, because in today's episode, we're not even going to get to the Canaanite conquest narratives, and which I to. think is a huge thing we have to deal with. So we probably will make this three episodes. But anyways, there's a story in here about so this this is from Richard Hayes's book, the moral Vision of the New Testament, um
0: which we have been living in
1: hands down, <clears throat> I think this is this is definitely this is firmly rooted in my top five favorite books I've ever read in my life yeah this might be in my top three mm. um it like I really like it. Um, I've read it multiple times and every, it's one of those books that every time you read it, you get something new. You're like, I did not see that the first time, mm-hmm. but it's also 500 pages of Richard Hayes, just bomb content. Yeah. It's a huge flipping book. It is. So this is actually my second copy of this book. <laughs> that's funny. I And well, and that's the thing. I don't know if Harper Collins just sucks. As a publishing house, but you can see it's even happening in my second copy. The binding is like tearing apart. But I also, I read it almost every year, and I reference it all
0: the freaking time. So why don't you just get like a digital copy? You don't have to keep rebuying it. I don't like digital (laughs) copies, Clayton. It's more economic. I don't care. It's better for the environment.
1: Watch yourself. <laughs> Watch yourself, okay? You know I'm right. Uh, I know this is a podcast about uh, God and ethic and nonviolence, but you are about to make me very violent. <laughs> you're about to throw hands. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, God will have to forgive me. You can turn the other cheek if you if you talk my books again.
0: <laughs> I'm just saying. You're killing trees by rebuying that copy Over and over and over again.
1: Well, I've only bought it twice.
0: You're going to have to buy another one.
1: Not yet. This one's not broke.
0: Yeah, but you're going to have to buy another one.
1: (laughs) All right. So, Richard begins to try to make his point by talking about the church's prolonged history of not only participating in, but also affirming mass violence and genocide. And his example actually comes from a priest, a Catholic priest who administered math to the Catholic who was the pilot of the atomic bomb in 1945. Yeah. Manhattan Project, like very fitting. Yeah. this is what the priest said to fail to speak to the utter moral corruption of the mass destruction of civilians was to fail as a Christian and as a priest. As I see it, Mm. I was there and I'll tell you that the operation operational moral atmosphere in the church in relation to the mass bombing of enemy civilians was totally indifferent, silent and corrupt at best. At worst, it was religiously supportive of these activities by blessing those who did them. Catholics dropped the A-bomb on top of the largest and first Catholic city in Japan. Mm-hmm. One would have thought that I, as a Catholic priest, would have spoken out against the atomic bombing of nuns. Three orders of Catholic, nun, Catholic sisters were destroyed mm-hmm. in Nagasaki that day one would have thought that I would have suggested that as a minimal standard of Catholic morality, Catholics shouldn't bomb Catholic children. Mm. I didn't. I, like the Catholic pilot of the Nagasaki plane, the great artiste, was heir to a Christianity that had for 1,700 years engaged in revenge, murder, torture, the pursuit of power, and prerogative violence, all in the name of our Lord.
0: So that's the thing that isn't talked about. Um, Well, I mean, we've kind of talked about it in a loose way, but more about like personal protection rather than in terms of war. Um,
1: Well, so technically Richard's section in here is primarily combating just war theory
0: right right right. but we have talked about it yes as like personal protection yes um you and i haven't really talked about it in terms of war in this way mm-hmm. not only are you killing the people that you're you should be taking the gospel to yeah um you also might be killing fellow christians yep um I have not thought about that. Um, Now, there is the argument there that like they're Christians, you know, they're, they know where they're going to go. And, but like, I don't think that that's a good argument. But
1: actually, well, not only is it not a great argument, it's also not a biblical argument because the whole premise of Christians here is to enact the kingdom of God.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. In Remember, yeah.
1: that that's the old fundamentalist approach that says our goal here is to live the best life so that we can die and float right. away to heaven. No, no, no. The narrative of the New Testament is that it's the Christians who are enacting the kingdom of God so that heaven may unite back to earth, yeah. not so that we float away to heaven and leave the corruption, but that God restores all things and heaven becomes reunited here.
0: That's that whole deal. We are our own pockets of heaven. Yeah. um, And you are taking away pockets of heaven on earth. Yes. um, Which logically has just been proven is unethical. Yep. Right. Um, Not only is it unethical, it's awful. Um, It's,
1: if I might be allowed by our listeners to be so bold it's disgusting. It's mm. deplorable. It's deplorable that the institution that was designed for service, love, and healing became it's, the place of power, violence, and
0: murder. Yeah, and is supportive of of these things. Yep. Um, it's it is I, disgusting. But then then I struggle right with. Things like Saddam Hussein mm. and, um, like Osama bin Laden, mm. right? Um, those men did horrible things. They and, did. And to protect the people from the further heinous acts that they might mm. commit, our government killed them or killed yeah. Osama, not necessarily Saddam, but, yeah. um, yeah we did have a hand in his death. Yep. Where's the line there? Because you are protecting people who can't protect themselves by committing a violent act. Can
1: I come back to that? Can I let Richard answer that as we progress through Richard's storytelling? Sure. Because he does address something very similar to that when he talks about enemies. Because that's what I would call that. I would call them an enemy. Oh, yeah. Let's let Richard get there. So last week we talked about (coughs) Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount about turn the other cheek, that kind of thing, this new idea of the radical living of the kingdom of God, all that kind of stuff. We didn't really talk about the Beatitudes. I mean, you need to know that those are there. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are all these things that are not people of power or or violence violence or anything like that. But once again, Richard Hayes is just the most amazing like reader of texts and storyteller narratively because this is what he says. The ending of Matthew once again, (coughs) excuse me, the ending of Matthew once again reinforces the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The resurrection serves as God's decisive vindication of Jesus' authority to teach and guide the community. In the gospel's final scene, Jesus appears to the 11 disciples once again on a mountain and declares all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Hmm. The task of Jesus' disciples is to make more disciples. They are charged not merely to win converts, but to train all who are baptized in the same disciplines that they have themselves learned from Jesus' teaching. And what disciplines are these? When we read Matthew as a whole, we see that what Jesus has commanded includes preeminently the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. This conclusion to the story makes it abundantly clear that Matthew does not regard the discipleship of the Sermon on the Mount as an impossible ideal. It is rather the way of life directly commanded by Jesus who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Mm. The way he bookends that together, not only is it magnified by Jesus' own actions on the cross in the Gospel of Matthew— In fact, it's embodied in Jesus' own actions on the cross. But I think he's right. It is like teaching them to obey everything Mm. I have commanded you. Yeah. Which did he not command them to turn the other cheek? He did. Did he? Well, we'll get there in a minute. But time and time again, Jesus condemns their pursuit of power and violence time and time and time and time again. And once again, he continues to show that they just don't get it. When they come to him and say, can I sit at your right hand? That's a question of power. Mm -hmm. And and what does Jesus say to them?
0: I mean, I actually can't remember the actual verbiage, but it's something essentially to the effect of no one, like neither of you, none of you. Yeah,
1: (laughs) neither of you are. (laughs) But then he also says, that's where you get the, the last will, be, will first, be first and the, the first, first will be, will be last. last. Like yeah. It is constantly Jesus trying to show them that power is not the answer. Yeah. Violence is not the answer and they keep not getting it.
0: Well, yeah. And and that was Peter's whole deal, right? You know, being a zealot and, and of that, uh, vein, that vein of people, mm-hmm. essentially terrorists. <laughs> um, Or could have been. Or could have been. Yep. Um, He thought that Jesus was there, and like lots of people, to take them out from under the Roman oppression.
1: Yep, of the Romans,
0: yep. And Jesus just said, no, I'm not here to do that, because that would take violence. Um, Yes. And what does Jesus do? Actually, through violence of the Romans, brings restoration. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to answer this question ethically and uh, get, keep going. Cause I was about to come back to the enemies thing.
1: Well, yeah. So we're, we're going to move towards there. <clears throat> I think Richard has this section. He says the foregoing discussion has laid to rest five of these six strategies listed above for mitigating the normative force of Matthew 5, 38 through 48 within the church. I'm not going to read them all. I think three of them are worth noting here, though. Number one, the teaching of nonviolent enemy love is not merely an eschatological vision or an ideal. Jesus practiced it to his own death, and the Gospel of Matthew presents this teaching as a commandment that is to be obeyed by Jesus' disciples. Number two, there's no basis in Matthew's gospel for restricting the prohibition of violence merely to a prohibition of self-defense. The example given in Matthew 5.39, turn the other cheek, certainly refers to self-defense. We might say even self-defense. But the larger paradigm of Jesus' own conduct in Matthew's gospel indicates a deliberate renunciation of violence as an instrument of God's will. Number three, the suggestion that the teaching of the sermon is intended only for a special class of super sanctified Christians is discredited by the great commission at the conclusion of the gospel. Yeah. All baptized believers are to be taught to observe all that Jesus command. I think the other thing that is very interesting to me, and this is, this is great for me as a person given over to a participationist soteriology. Mm-hmm. Richard points this out. Those who are peacemakers are to be called sons of God. Don't miss that sons of God and sons of the most high are the language used for the basis of uh, deification language in the scriptures. Being a son of God is to be in participation of the divine those who are peacemakers are the ones that are told to be called the sons of God. Yeah. <coughs> because like God, they love their enemies. Thus, this is what Richard says. The church's embodiment of nonviolence is according to the sermon on a mount, it's indispensable witness to the gospel.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: I have read this book almost every year for almost 10 years. I have battled with this conversation every single one of those years since I've read this. Yeah. Because it is absolutely countercultural to our... Narrative that we've been given culturally. Mm -hmm. It's also countercultural to the narrative that we were given spiritually. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But as I sit here today, I think Richard's right. I, I, let me say, I think he's more right than historically what I've been shown is because this is what he continues talking about the enemies Despite his stinging criticism of those in positions of authority, Richard's talking about Jesus right now, he never attempts to exert force as a way of gaining social or political power. He imposes an order of silence to keep his disciples from proclaiming him as Messiah until he has redefined the title in terms of the cross mm. and he instructs the disciples that their vocation mm. must be the same as his. Yeah. He withdraws from the crowd that wants to take him by force to make him king in John chapter 6. At every turn, he renounces violence as a strategy for promoting God's kingdom. Example, Luke 9, 51 and 56, where he rebukes James and John for wanting to call down fire from heaven to consume unreceptive Samaritans. And he teaches his followers to assume the posture of servanthood. Mark 10, John 13, and to expect to suffer at the hands of the world's authorities. The hope of vindication and justice lies not with worldly force. That is the satanic temptation rejected at the beginning of his ministry, but in God's eschatological power. Jesus' death is fully consistent with his teaching. He refuses to lift a finger in his own defense, scolds those who try to defend him with his sword, and rejects calling down legions of angels to fight a holy war against his enemies in Matthew 26.
0: Okay. So that is very valid. But then I struggle with the Old Testament and when God, because you still have to do something with this, it's still there. Yeah, we're gonna
1: have to make that part I'm, three. I'm not, though I'm not
0: talking about the Canaanite conquest oh, okay. narrative. Gotcha. I'm talking about um, God commanding Saul to kill man, woman, child, and animal.
1: We're gonna have to get to there because that's. I mean, it's not it's the Canaanite conquest, but there. it's but like it's the same kind of thing.
0: But like that was something that God commanded. We'll have to make that part three. I'll have to answer that at part three.
1: Let me get through the rest of this, and then we'll tackle that next week. It's just, it's so,
0: uh, I'm so confused about, like, all of this. This is a really hard conversation. If you you
1: even want, we can turn right around after this and record that episode so that you don't have to leave here with those unanswered questions. Do we have time to do that? Yeah. Then let's do that. Okay. So, continuing on, he now moves into a conversation of Paul. And you know, I'm a Paul guy more than I'm a Gospels guy. No cap. The way, he, what he does with Paul here, I'm like, you are the smartest man alive. <laughs> I, like, and this is one of the things I had never picked up on in all the times I read this book. Like, this is one of the things that didn't stick for me.
0: Until you just read it, like, before we started recording.
1: To, to refresh myself. This is from Romans, skipping between chapter 12 and chapter 16. This is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved. Never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Richard says. And it may be the best written prose I've ever read. There is not a syllable in the Pauline letters that can be cited in support of Christians employing violence. Paul's occasional use of military imagery, examples of 2 Corinthians 10, Philippians 1, actually have the opposite effect. The warfare imagery is drafted into the service of the gospel rather than the reverse. He appropriates battle imagery as a way of describing the apocalyptic context in which the community lives, but the actual quote unquote fighting is done through the proclamation of the gospel and through obedient Mm. yielding of one's members to God as hopla, weapons of righteousness. Romans six, the implications of this metaphorical logic are nicely summarized in Second Corinthians ten. For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly.
0: The the armor of God thing, right? Uh, well, that's Ephesians. Well, that's in yes. Ephesians, right? But like the same They're headed deal. down the same path, yes. right? Same deal. Yes that you probably haven't heard about or talked about since you were in elementary school. but like, yeah, or yeah. yeah, Sunday school.
1: I mean, we don't talk about it enough.
0: No, we don't, honestly.
1: And then, so I'm skipping around a little bit, but Richard now moves into a conversation of several unique biblical texts dealing directly with violence in the New Testament. One of them is Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, Richard has this whole thing about reading this out of context. Right. Which, it's a very easy proof text if you Mm -hmm. just do it, right? But this is what Richard says. The saying occurs within Matthew's mission discourse, instructing the disciples about how to conduct the mission of preaching and healing that he is sending them to perform. The discourse is full of warnings that the disciples will face opposition, arrest, floggings, and calumny. They should expect to be opposed even by their own families. In this context, the sword of verse 34 is a metaphor for the division that will occur between those who proclaim the good news of the kingdom and those who refuse to receive it. That reading makes way more sense to me in the context of the narrative because, and we're about to get there. Well, I'll wait. I'll, I'll tie the pretty bow on this in a minute. He continues and he says, if we, are to think at, if we are to think at all of any literal sword in Matthew 10, 34, we will immediately see that the disciples of Jesus are to be victims or are to be its victims as in verses 18, 21, and 28, rather than its wielders. The disciples are not to fear those who kill the body. Their mission is to go without even a staff, verse 10, and certainly without a sword to preach the good news. Luke 22. The one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. Again, Richard thinks that this is a figurative purpose, and he says, However, they must now be prepared for a time of rejection and persecution. They will need to take along their own provisions, and the sword serves as a vivid symbol of the fact that they must now expect to encounter opposition. Yeah. Hang on. We're going to get there. Read verse 32.6 for me. And this is from the NRSV translation. Wait, what? Read Luke twenty two thirty six. Oh. From the NRSV translation. Um,
0: verse 36. Mm-hmm. He said to them, But now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. Keep going. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless, and indeed... What is written about me is being fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. He replied, it is enough.
1: Okay. So you stop right there. <clears throat> Richard translates that a little different in right. his own translation. Before
0: we get there, can okay. I make a, a, an observation? Sure. This whole deal here is about fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yes good for you this whole deal is about fulfilling prophecy not about anything else do
1: you know what prophecy it's fulfilling
0: uh isaiah 53 which is what uh the crucifixion the
1: suffering servant yeah yeah it's not about violence at all it's actually about being a victim of violence so yes good catch You also kind of jumped ahead of where I was going, but yes, good catch. This is what Richard says. The disciples, however, give (coughs) continuing evidence of their incomprehension of Jesus's destiny by taking the figurative warning as a literal instruction. Lord, look, here are two swords. Jesus's response is one of impatient dismissal, indicating that they have failed to grasp the point. You said... The NRSV says, it is enough. Yeah. Richard translates it, enough already. Like, once again, I'm frustrated. We've had this conversation time and time and time again. We're at the end of the gospel story, and you still don't flipping get it. You still want power and Roman overthrow. That's not what I'm here for. As evidenced by... Richard's next comment. The truth of this reading is confirmed by the subsequent scene at Jesus' arrest. The Mm. disciples ask, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And one of them, without waiting for an answer, cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. Jesus, however, rebukes him and heals the injured slave. Here again, literal armed resistance is exposed as a foolish misunderstanding of Jesus' message. Now to your point. The passage cited in Luke 22 is Isaiah 53:12, and he was counted among the lawless. It should not escape the attention of Luke's readers that this citation comes from the concluding verse of Isaiah's prophetic description of the suffering servant whose life was handed over to death right. for the sake of the sins of many.
0: Well, and, and this is something that we talk about a lot Luke is the gospel for the outcast, right? Oh, yes. Luke is the gospel for the, quote, lawless person. Yes. Right? No doubt. And, and we, again, also talk about this a lot. Ancient readers would have picked up on that. They would know that this is about Isaiah 53. Yes. They would know that this is about the fulfillment of a prophecy. Yet, even though the disciples knew that prophecy— because Jesus has talked about it before. This isn't the first time. Nope. Right? And they've read it, probably. Yep. Um, and they still don't get it. Yep. So, like, what's going on there?
1: In the same—I mean, how many times have we time and time and time Ooh. again preached a narrative that people still don't get? Why is it that we still hear the narrative, why don't come to church to hear about social justice— Why is it that we still have this issue of people not caring about caring for God's creation and taking care of the environment? Yeah. Because it doesn't fit a narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative I want the gospel to fit. And so I just reject it. Or
0: or largely ignore it. And you think that the disciples were victims of that as well?
1: Probably. I mean, what kind of fisherman carries around a sword? (laughs)
0: terrorist (laughs) a zealot
1: yeah i mean it's a narrative that he wanted to hold on to yeah and honestly largely didn't ever get rid of i mean based on the based on some of the conversations that he has with paul
0: seems like he's still very
1: he's still very much so given all over to his old jewish zealotry
0: well and you know what's so funny is that i mean jesus gives peter the keys of to the kingdom. The he guy does. who wants power is given it. Mm-hmm. But if that's the opposite of what we should be looking for, why did Jesus give Peter the power if he's so clearly hungry for it?
1: Yeah, he's hungry for it in an Enneagram 3 kind of way. Um, But his heart...
0: Was in the right place for sure.
1: Well, but he at least from what the tradition tells us about his death, I wouldn't have wanted the keys handed to anybody else.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I mean,
1: the fact that they want to crucify him and he says, no, I can't, I can't be, I'm not worthy. I can't
0: die in the same manner as my Lord.
1: And so they do it upside down. Much more painful. Much more painful. And and I wouldn't want the keys handed to
0: anybody else. No, that's true. That's fair.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did he want power? Absolutely. Was he a violent person? An angry
0: person? Seems like it. Absolutely.
1: But I wouldn't want I wouldn't have wanted the keys handed to anybody else based on the way he acted when it really mattered.
0: Yeah. No, I guess that's a fair point.
1: It's just the ultimate embodiment of the imitation of Christ with the humility. Of someone who knows their brokenness you know
0: what it is is it's peter fulfilling jesus statement that you will do greater things than i um that's a fair point point.
1: and notice in jesus in, in peter's most prized moment throughout christian history it's his only moment where he didn't want power mm. and violence